Rebetzin Chaya Mushka Schneerson was the wife of the Lubavitcher Rebbe for almost 60 years. This Thursday, we mark 36 years since her passing. She was very devoted, sharing her husband with all of us, the rest of the world. The Rebbe, for over 50 years, worked every day, not taking a day's vacation. This is a picture of her funeral. You can see in the center, her husband, the Rebbe, walking behind her casket with thousands of people in attendance, giving her her last respects. In her memory, and in memory of Mrs. Glansman, Yafa Bas Shaul HaKohen, who recently passed, we dedicate today's lesson to their memory. Welcome to Lunch and Learn. It's Tuesday at 12.15 p.m. Time to study Torah. We take 60 minutes or so to explore a topic from a Jewish perspective. And today, our lesson is titled, Final Rites. What the Torah and Jewish tradition teaches us about the final moments of a person's life. As the saying goes, everybody will be dead one day. Just give them some time. It is part of life on this world that our life is limited on this world. And comes a time of death. We hear it in the news. You may have experienced it with a family member. And it is a bewildering time. And there is a portion of the Torah, big portion, which deals with the end of life. And we will today address those traditions and the period immediately surrounding the death We'll try to keep it upbeat as much as we can as we go through the beautiful and meaningful traditions of this time. <clears throat> so as usual, we have a source sheet to help us along. We're going to be looking at some pieces of the Talmud and a lot from the Code of Jewish Law, which has many chapters dealing with step-by-step -step of the process. And again, in previous lessons, we talked about burial and the funeral. Today, we'll focus on the actual moments of death, right before, right after, and what goes on. And although this is not a subject we should dwell on, but from time to time, um, knowing about our mortality, and as the saying goes, the meaning of life is that it stops. So knowing that life is not unlimited, that helps us live a more meaningful life. So from time to time, we can <clears throat> learn about this period in life, and we should all be blessed with long, healthy years till 120. So we're going to uh, jump right in. There are lots of traditions going back thousands of years to the times of the Talmud, to biblical times, and usually it's the rabbis or the burial society, the Jewish burial society known as the Hevra Kadisha, that are well-versed and unfortunately uh, quite busy doing these things. And it's done, you know, kind of privately, so not everybody is aware. But today we'll focus on the parts that are important for all of us to know, which are applicable to those in attendance or family members. So although we won't cover every single detail, we'll give a general overview of the important rituals and things to be aware of during such a time. It is a great mitzvah to preserve the dignity and give honor to the deceased and being aware of the traditions is giving us the ability that when such a time arises and an opportunity presents itself, we will have the knowledge how to respectfully give them a Jewish end-of-life experience. 
So we're going to divide today's lesson into four sections right before death, the actual death right after death, and then post that period, the beginning of the preparation for the funeral. So we begin with a verse, a pasuk. Hello, uh, Joy, Jody and Roy and Vicky and everybody joining on live and listening to this whenever you are. So, source number one, when a man or woman commits any of the sins and that person is found guilty, they shall confess the sin and make restitution. That's a verse from the book of Numbers, in the fourth book, the book of Bamidbar. And without getting into the details of what the verse is referring to, but this teaches us that all dying persons must confess. As we see in the verse, that if the person committed a sin and the person is found guilty, they shall confess the sin and then goes on to bring a sacrifice during his lifetime or so on. But the first step is the verbal acknowledgement, the confession of the sin, recognizing that we have done wrong and asking God to forgive us. And this teaches us, says the Sifri, which is the Midrash, which teaches us that all dying persons must confess. Even somebody in the Torah, who is given capital punishment, before their death, they confess. And that way, they are cleansed and their death is a atonement for their sins. And any person on their deathbed should confess. Nobody is perfect, or at least most of us are not perfect. We strive to live perfect lives, but it is only humane that we err and we sin, <clears throat> not following the Torah to the T. And therefore, there is room for each and every one of us to confess, or not us, but those that are dying, to confess before their death. Now, not everybody has the opportunity before death. Not Some people are tragically killed without having the time to confess before their death. <clears throat> Some are unconscious for many days or lengthy period before their passing. But it is considered a great merit for somebody who has passed after saying the confession and therefore it should be done. Many times a rabbi is called to the bedside of such a person to help the person along with their prayers. If the person is not able to say it themselves, there is a or a long version, the confession, like we say on the High Holidays on Yom Kippur, there is a shorter version just saying the words, my death shall atone for my sins, or it can be said, just, or it can be thought in, in the heart, or somebody else in the presence of that person can, can say it. Source number two, this idea is derived not only from that verse, but also from a story of Joshua. Yehoshua was the successor of Moses, and he led the Jewish people over the Jordan River into Israel. And the first city they encountered was the city of Yericho, Jericho, which they conquered miraculously with the walls crumbling. Now, when they, got, when they moved on to the next city called Ai, as recorded in the book of Joshua, they had a setback. And Yehoshua realized that they must have done something wrong. And they did an investigation with divine assistance. And it turns out that there was one individual named Achan, Ben Karmi, the son of Karmi, was from the tribe of Judah. And he, <clears throat> drawing his own conclusions, following his own opinions, had taken from the booty of the city of Jericho. Now, Yehoshua had uh, made a consecration along with the Jewish people of the entire city of Jericho that all of the booty, all of the stuff will be dedicated to God. And here he went, Achan, and had taken some silver and gold and, and articles of clothing for himself and had it in his tent. And that is because he kind of transgressed that consecration, that oath, he uh, had caused the Jewish people to stumble in war. So, source number two, Yehoshua said to Achan, 
Give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and make confession to Him. For receiving His punishment, Yeshua requests of Him to confess His sin. Achan answered Yeshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus I have done, have I done. And from this story, from the wording, what Yeshua asked and what He responded, the Talmud deducts, derives, deduces that everyone who confesses has a share in the world to come. That once somebody confessed, they now have a share, they are cleansed, it is a uh, healing process together with the punishment, whether it was uh, death in that case. If they confess, that kind of, kind of uh, assures them a share in the world to come in paradise. So it is considered a great merit for, for a person to have confessed before their passing. So that is tradition number one. I remember as a child being told that my grandfather, even though he was um, he was quite young when he died, he was about 40 years old, the Holocaust survivor, but he had the great merit and the presence of mind to say the confession before his passing, which is considered a, uh, a great merit. So that's point number one, and it's uh, just clarified uh, in the Code of Jewish Law. Source number three, if the visitors notice that the patient is near death, they should tactfully say to him, make confession, but don't be disturbed about it. For many have confessed and have recovered, and many who did not confess have died. So you don't want to lose this opportunity. You should also be told to ask the forgiveness of all he had wronged. Kind of preparing himself spiritually uh, for his appearance in the court of heaven. Now, it says they should tell him tactfully because we don't want to cause any additional stress or distress to the patient because that might expedite his actual death. If he will be really distressed and think that he's dying any moment, and that can actually bring on the death. And that is forbidden. Source number four. None of these words should be said to him in the presence of the unlearned or the overly emotional, for it may cause them to weep when they hear him being told to confess and confessing, kind of preparing for his demise, demise, that might cause them to weep and thereby break the heart of the sick man. If the sick person, so and we don't want to break his heart because breaking of his heart might bring on the death earlier than it would have naturally. And we would be shortening his life. And that is forbidden. We're not allowed to bring on somebody's death earlier than would have been without our involvement. Even a moment of life is valuable. Every moment of life is infinitely valuable, not because of the quality of life, but just life, just a person's soul animating his body is life. And we don't want to take away even a moment when a person is at this critical stage, the end of life we don't want to do anything that will hasten the passing. And that is why we should be careful when we tell them to confess. It should be done tactfully, carefully, and kind of say, it's okay, many have confessed and they have recovered. Continuing in source 4, if the sick person wants to make an acquisition in order to confirm his will, it may be done even on Shabbos. Also, if he wants to send for his relatives, it is permitted to hire a non-Jew on Shabbos and to send him to bring them. So there are certain kind of leniencies in order to placate, in order to calm the critically ill patient. <clears throat> if he's about to, if he wants to confirm his will, he wants to make a kinyan, he wants to make an acquisition, which is generally not done on Shabbos, but it would be permitted 
uh, in this case, because it is important to preserve even a moment of his life. We want him to be calm. We want him not to get overly stressed. And similarly, we don't hire non-Jewish people on Shabbos just to do work for us. There are exceptions, but generally we are supposed to rest and not have someone doing everything for us. There are only certain things that they can do. But we are allowed to hire a non-Jew to go and call the relatives that they should be ready after Shabbos to quickly come to his bedside in order to calm him. So we see the importance of even a moment of life and in the last moments of his life we should be careful not to scare the person. We don't have to tell them their uh, their death is imminent if we feel that this will bring them to a mental state which might expedite their actual death and shorten their lifetime. Source number five, if a close relative of an ill patient dies, he should not be told about it, lest he become distressed. So we'll, we won't disclose, we will not share with a critically ill patient that their close relative have died, because if they're on the verge of death, why bring, give them that stress and perhaps bring on the death even earlier. Even if he becomes aware of it, he should not be told to tear his garment, even though that is the tradition that the immediate relative does tear the garment, but he shall not tear his garment because the tearing of the garment is such a tangible act which will bring on lots of grief, and that is not good for this person in this situation. Lest it cause him greater anxiety, one should not cry or lament in his presence lest he will fear that he too is dying. We may not bring a coffin into the house before he dies. And some say that we may not dig out a grave for him. We should not prepare for his death. Yes, it is a tradition that when a person is younger or healthy, they should buy their own plot in the cemetery and they can make arrangements. But as it gets to the end of life, that is not the time to start making their preparations once the person dies and his death is established, or her death, then we take care of all of the arrangements as soon as possible. But before that, we don't prepare for, uh, for death. We don't you know, bring in the coffin and dig the grave. Everything is kind of just waiting for the person, when the person dies. And one of the reasons is in order not to bring stress to that individual, because every moment of his life is infinitely valuable, and we don't want to bring his spirits down any more <coughs> than necessary. And finally, source number six, a person who is very near death is considered as a living being in every respect until the soul stops animating the body and breathing. The person is a living being. It is forbidden to touch him. For anyone who touches him, and this goes for women as well, is considered like one who sheds blood. This can be compared to a dripping, flickering candle, which becomes extinguished as soon as someone touches it. So by touching the person during this stage, at the last moments of life, before the soul departs, we are not to touch the individual. We just stand around, but not touch because it's like a flickering flame that any little touch can bring on the death prematurely and that can be considered bloodshed. So we stand around, but we don't touch, uh, unless the touch is for the healing, we're trying to heal the person, but otherwise we let the person be and we avoid any contact. So that is our first section here. And again, uh, welcome John and Nancy and everybody joining on. Today we're talking about the last moments of life, what Judaism has to tell us about this. And <clears throat> in a Jewish perspective, although we do not dwell and study these laws um, too much, but once in a while it is important to think about our mortality and this period in life in order to enhance, and only in order to enhance the quality and the m meaningfulness of our life as we live it now, realizing that it doesn't last forever. And also to know when the opportunity does come, how to react, how to behave in the most Jewishly way possible. They say if 
You live each day as if it were your last. Someday you will most certainly be right. And this is a Jewish teaching that we should live every day as if it were our last. Certainly. Okay, so that's our first section here. Before, when death is imminent, before. So number one, the confession. Number two, to be easy on the person, not to get him distressed. And number three, not to touch him, to cause his body to expire, his soul to expire uh, prematurely. And we don't prepare, we don't prepare anything for sure in his presence. You know the story of uh, old Moshe who is critically ill, is on his deathbed and he is really hungry and his family is there, the grandchildren, everybody's in, kind of in the house. Um, and he calls in his grandson, he says, Sammy, please, I'm so hungry, please bring me some chopped liver from the kitchen goes in he finds grandma in the kitchen and he wants to take the chopped liver grandma says what are you doing he says it's for grandpa he says go tell grandpa the doctor said it's not good for him he goes to grandpa grandpa says moshe says i'm dying anyway what's the, what's the difference let me just enjoy some chopped liver he goes back to grandma and grandma says listen the chopped liver is for the shiva tell him he can't have so that's not okay. We don't prepare for the Shiva. We don't prepare for that. Everything is on pause. And we value every moment of life. So let's move on to the second section, which is the culmination of life, the actual process of death of the soul departing from the body. You see, the soul existed for many years, thousands of years before we were born. Our soul is invested in our body animates our body for 120 years or so, and then there is a disillusion. The, the soul ascends to heaven and the body descends to the earth. That is death. It is a transition to another phase of the soul's life. So here are a few pointers of Jewish tradition. Source number seven. Yaakov, going back to the days of our patriarch Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, Yaakov gathered up his feet. He was 147 years old when he passed in Egypt, living his last 17 years near his son Joseph. Yaakov gathered up his feet to the bed and expired. He gathered up his feet. He, first he was talking to his children. Then he brought his feet into the bed and expired. Those who are attending the dying person should see to it that no limb of his projects from his bed. Nevertheless, if this was not done and his hand or foot was extended, it is forbidden to touch him in order to put it back because as we said, once a person is in the throngs of death, it is forbidden to touch the individual because that might hasten his demise. But one should try in any way possible, that the hands and feet of the individual should all be on the bed. Now this has something to do, from what I understand, with uh, some evil spirits or the, the angel of death that comes around the bed and when the limbs are extending, projecting from the bed, that limb will kind of bring on pain to the person. So this is the tradition. Again, I'm not 100% sure how to explain it, but uh, the time of death is kind of a spooky kind of time, so there are some interesting rituals. But that is definitely a biblical sourced tradition. Source number eight, when death is imminent, no one is permitted to leave him. It is of high uh, importance that the person should pass with his family, with somebody standing at his side, even a stranger, but a caring stranger. And if one notices that death is imminent, it is forbidden to leave his bedside so that his soul does not depart when he is alone because the soul suffers grief when it must leave the body alone. It is a difficult process for the soul to die and when somebody is there to comfort them, especially their loved ones, it is a greatly comforting for the soul. It is proper to gather 10 adult males to be present at the departure of the soul because a minion uh, brings on the divine presence. It's kind of a holy atmosphere, and that's why certain prayers are only said in the presence of ten men. So if possible, that should be arranged. But they should not 
have casual talk. They should engage in Torah subjects or Psalms, which is comforting for the soul as it ascends and departs from the body. It is customary to light candles in the presence of a dying person before death, at death, right after death, at the head of the dying person. Um, prayers are said at this moment, the Shema Yisrael prayer, the Adon Olam prayer, Adon Olam, the, the Psalms, there are various chapters that are said, so it is a uh, good idea to either have a rabbi there come sometime before or for these prayers to be recited escorting the soul on its journey. An interesting reason I saw why the candles are lit, it is just like when we commemorate the yard site, the passing of somebody, a candle is lit because the candle represents the soul. So too, when a person dies, his relatives parents come to greet him and escort him to heaven and in their honor candles are lit and I've heard uh, from many that or I've heard from some and, and I've heard this from others heard this being told by others as well that a person in his last moments will call out to their mother or their father uh, as if they were near them as if they see their parents and uh, this tradition of lighting the candle kind of fits with that, that it's in order to greet those souls as they come to take their loved one back to heaven with them. But that is uh, the next the second tradition, to actually be there. It's a great honor. There was a story, uh, I believe it was in the 70s, of a man who arranged a Torah dedication in his home. A new Torah was being dedicated, and... He invited many people, among them a uh, young woman. And during the celebration, this woman collapsed, had a heart attack or an aneurysm, and uh, in a few moments she was she was gone. And the man felt really bad. He wrote a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe saying that, you know, maybe if I would not have arranged this party and I would not have invited her, maybe she would not have died. So maybe it's my fault. And he felt really guilty. And the Rebbe responded saying, there's no such thing. Everybody has an allotted amount of years God-given. And obviously this was her time. But had you not arranged that this celebration, she may have died walking in the street and she would not have been surrounded by friends, by family members. She would not have been in a holy environment, a Torah dedication. And you provided that for her. You provided her comfort in her last moments of life. Seeing you, who he was a doctor, and you know fellow Jewish people and friends around, that was a great comfort to this young woman. So that is something to know that when we have uh, somebody who is imminently close to dying, it is important to keep in mind that it's a, a great comfort to the soul and it's a mitzvah, great mitzvah, to be there with them at the moment of their death. Source number nine. One who is present at the time of a person's passing is required to tear his clothing. Now, <clears throat> there is this concept of kriya, rip, the renting of the garments, ripping of the clothing, but only by the immediate family members. And that today is usually done by the funeral with the help of the rabbi and a special blessing is said. But that's only for the immediate relatives. And even if they were not present at the actual death, that is for a father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, and a spouse. So the seven immediate relatives. However, what we're saying here has nothing to do with the relatives. Anybody, anyone who is present at the moment of death, when a Jewish soul departs from the body, is required to tear his clothing, even a little bit. This is because a person's passing is likened to the burning of a Torah scroll. So, unfortunately, in our history, we have cases of a Torah scroll being burnt by our enemies. And the, the Jewish law is that if the Torah scroll is being burnt being destroyed, then we must rip our clothing. Now, what's a Torah scroll? A Torah scroll is a piece of parchment, comes from a cow, and uh, you know that, that wasn't holy as a cow, I mean, holy cow, but it was just a cow, and just regular parchment could have been written, uh, parchment was used for anything. But this parchment was taken and sanctified by writing God's names and the words of the Holy Torah on this parchment. And the same thing is with the Jewish body. 
or a body in general. Uh, the soul is a piece of God, is godly. And this soul is invested and enclosed and brought into, unified with the body. The soul is holy, and now the body becomes holy. Because the body, just as the parchment, became a vessel for the holiness of the soul. Excuse me. And that is why, continuing in source number 9, frayed Torah scroll coverings, the covering of the Torah scroll that were frayed and no longer usable, may be used as shrouds for a corpse with no relatives. If there are no relatives that take care of uh, sewing shrouds or paying for shrouds, so you can find frayed Torah scroll coverings and use that as shrouds for the body of a Jew is also holy. It's like a Torah scroll. Even though generally those things are holy. And therefore... one who is present at the time of death needs to perform the ripping of the garment. Now, this is not practiced today because, we'll see in Source 10, our custom is that those who are present when the soul departs do not tear their garments. The reason is that people will not want to be present if it means tearing their garments. Nobody's going to want to hang around. You know, think about it in the olden days. People didn't have a whole wardrobe and lots of clothing and uh, 10 pairs of pants and 8 suits and a million dresses and shoes. They had a, you know, a couple of pieces of clothing. So if they would be ha required to tear their clothing, and that wouldn't be so nice, at the time of death, they would, they would, they would avoid being there. And then the person would die alone. And that is more important. It's more important for one to be present to comfort console or, or to ease the process of death by their loved ones or somebody being around them so that dying person kind of forgives his respect of his uh, body and allows them not to rip their clothing at his death in order that they should not avoid being present at his side. What we do practice today is that the immediate relatives will do this later, usually at the funeral, but that's only for the immediate relatives. So this uh, tradition just tells us about the holiness of how we view the body. It is sacred. It housed the soul. And it attained its own independent sanctity as well. Body was used. The soul used the body to do good things. To help others to say blessings, and so on. And therefore, even after the soul departs from the body, the body is still treated with dignity, with holiness, and when death occurs, technically there is an obligation for one to rip their garments. Source number 11. The time of death is looked at as a very holy time. Spiritually charged time. The verse tells us, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes and Kohelas, greater is the day of death than the day of birth. Which is uh, quite uh, interesting because you would think you know, the day of birth is definitely more exciting and joyful and you have a whole life ahead of you than the day of death. But the verse tells us that greater is the day of death. And when, in what, one uh, aspect, the way it's explained in the teachings of Hasidus and Kabbalah, is that the moment, this is the moment at which the sum total of his or her achievements in this world come to fruition. Physically, one may be in a diminished state. But spiritually, this is our moment of highest potential. And that is why there were great sages that at the moments of their passing, their face was on fire and they revealed, you know, secrets of the Torah, of the Kabbalah, like Alag Ba'omer, where we mark the day of the passing of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who wrote the Zohar, uh, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. It is a day of joy because he said the day on his of his passing, before he passed, he revealed you know, great secrets and he was elevated to a very spiritual state 
and it was like a very holy kind of time. And and really, the yard side, the day of passing of any anybody, especially a, a holy person, man or woman who lived, is considered a holy time, a sacred time, because all of their accomplishments of their whole life kind of um, break out and and impact this world. It's like the culmination of all of their work and everything just like explodes. So it's a really great time, a really lofty moment. And every year that's that happens the first time at their passing. And every year that recurs uh, on the day of the anniversary of their passing. So that is our second section. The actual time of death is important to have their limbs in the body and to be there at the time of their death to say prayers with them or in their presence, and there is technically the ripping of the garment, because it's a very sad time, it's like a Torah scroll being put away, and being burnt, and not usable anymore, the body being kind of not usable anymore, to do the holy things that it did when the soul was in the body, and it's considered a very special time, and the person, if he can, says the Shema Yisrael, declaring their faith in God, as we talked about in a previous lesson, about the Shema Yisrael prayer. Stories told of uh, Jake, who's on his deathbed, and his eyes are closed, and he says with a faint voice, he says, you know, Becky, are you here? His wife says, yes, I'm here. Um, Max, my son, are you here? Yes. Uh, Deborah, Devorah, are you here? He goes through all of his children one by one, and they all say, yes, Daddy, we're here, we're with you. All of a sudden, he gets up, sits up in bed, and he says, so who's watching the store? So, that's just a good joke, but it brings out how the Jewish tradition is that all family members should be there and make an effort to ease the transition by the family members being there, him not being left or her not being left alone at the moment of death. Move on to our third section. What happens right after somebody passes and the soul departs from the body? The first idea is respect. The body is treated with dignity, as if, the, as if the person is still alive. With dignity, very delicately, with lots of sensitivity. And here are some interesting traditions. Source number 12. When it is certain that he has passed, or she has passed, which is usually 20-30 minutes. Um, maybe nowadays, if it's in the hospital with certain machines, it can be a little earlier. Once it's established... They used to put a feather by the nose to see if the breathing has totally ceased. But once it has been established that the person has indeed passed and the person is no longer breathing, the windows should then be opened. This is a tradition. Windows should be opened. Why exactly? I, I had trouble finding the reason. Perhaps it is for the soul to depart. Perhaps it is for sort certain evil and impure spirits that kind of hang around at this time uh, and the opening of the window kind of releases them. But this is a tradition. It is customary to pour out all the water from the vessels in the vicinity of the deceased. But by this act, people will know that someone has died and it will avoid a direct announcement. He who utters slander is a fool. So King Solomon tells us that sharing slander, sharing bad news is foolish. It's not wise to be the bearer, to be the sharer of bad news, unless it is inevitable. But generally, we try and hint it, we try and not say it so clearly. There are stories in the Talmud, I believe it was Rav Kahana, that somebody had passed and he went, he would, went to visit them. And the way he signaled to the sages that he had passed was by doing something you know different, kind of giving them the message and not being the one to actually verbalize the bad news. So one of the way, one of the reasons why of this custom, this tradition of pouring water is that was a kind of a sign you would pour water and people will know that, um, you know, in the surrounding area, the water was poured and that was kind of a sign. There are other reasons given as well. Uh, different impure spirits would be found. The angel of death takes the sword and puts it into the water and that, you know, so it shouldn't be used. It should be spilled out. But again, it's only drawn water that was in a vessel that was closed, not 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 uh, meaning not closed. If it was closed and sealed, a water bottle, that's okay. But if it was an open bottle or bowl or bucket or something that there was some water in, so those should be uh, disposed. 
And again, it's only water, not salt, not like any you know coke or any kind of uh, liquid. It's specifically water. Um, it's just an interesting tradition that is brought. Source number thirteen: A parent should not kiss his dead children. This says in Code of Jewish Law, after their passing, a parent should not kiss their children. The corpse exudes ritual impurity. And that impurity rises up to heaven and would harm the person who does the kissing. See, the soul is very holy. It's, it's God's energy that is, uh, was in the body. Now, when the soul departs, although the soul kind of sticks around somewhat, there's a certain level of the soul, but the soul has five levels, and somewhat connects to the body, and that's why visiting the grave is a way of communicating, connecting to the soul. But most of the soul kind of departs from the body, and there is a vacuum. There is a... There is a void that is created in the body. The, the body is holy. And there are some remnants of the soul. Soul, And these kind of impure spirits try to latch on and suck any kind of energy. That's the way the Kabbalah explains it. So like think of a jar of honey. It's an empty jar, but there's a little bit left over there. The residue, the remnants, and all the bugs will come and the bees try and get something. So in order to... Um, there are certain traditions here, whether it's the window or different things involving these spirits. Um, that was what it says clearly, that a parent should not kiss the dead children because once they're dead, there is, a, there is a impurity on the corpse. Now, the question is about children kissing the parent. So, in the Torah, it's interesting that Joseph does kiss his father Yaakov. However... Uh, some say that that was only Joseph and it was only Yaakov. Yaakov, Jacob was a tzaddik, he was a holy man and, uh, and uh, you know, things were different over there that would not apply to everybody else. I believe the custom today is to refrain from kissing uh, a parent after their death. Another reason given is that by kissing the child or kissing the parent, kissing the deceased, it kind of shows that we love them so much and we, we, we want to be close to them and that, God forbid, can uh, symbolize that we want to be with them and go along with them and that would not be a good thing. We want to stay down here alive and well and let them go on their journey and we'll see them after 120 years. So after a person's passing, uh, the eyes are closed. Some have a tradition that the children do that. Their eyes are closed, the mouth is closed and the body is laid on the ground until the funeral home and the Hevra Kadisha, the burial society, will take the body to prepare the body for the funeral. The body is laid on the floor. Source 14, when lifting the deceased from his bed to lay him on the floor, care must be taken to keep him covered. For all the customs of modesty that apply to the living, apply also to the dead. It is as if the soul is still present, and it is to a certain extent kind of in the area, uh, close to the body, and is in a vulnerable state. And we treat the body as if it was alive, with lots of dignity. Actually, the entire body is covered, even the, the face is covered, and for a variety of reasons. But we'll get to that in a moment. But it's, the body is placed on the ground, the candles at the head of the body. And we take care that the entire body is, is covered. Now, some have a uh, custom to have a viewing of the body. Of course, this is not the Jewish tradition. It is not respectful to look at somebody if they are not living, they're not alive. It's a... Uh, it's, it's, uh, um, a breach of privacy, especially if when they passed, they were not in the best of health and poor people, maybe they were, uh, they died of hunger and they would not be respectful. And it's also, it would, would be a lack of respect to them because we might kind of be disgusted by what we see and have a bad kind of memory of what they looked like in their death. And that might hinder our reverence for for them later on so as soon as a person dies you know a child or somebody can can cover cover the the body and that is the best practice source number 
five. We maintain a watch over the dead out of respect. The body is never left alone from when the person is about to die. We said the body, people should be there. And until the burial, the body is not left alone. There is a uh, shmira, the honor guard. So the body is always guarded. For it were, if we were to leave the body alone, it would appear as if we abandoned it like a utensil that we no longer desire. It's like, okay, the person is dead. Like, who cares about this body? No, we don't leave the body. We, we, des- we need to, uh, this is a holy, sacred object, and it needs to be given respect, and we, stay, we stick around. Other reasons are given as well, uh, that uh, you know, when people lived more close to nature, and there was uh, you know, animals that could have came, mice and stuff that could have uh, came to the body, so we have somebody there to, ins- to ins- make sure that does not happen. And also certain spirits, evil spirits, impure spirits, by a Jewish person being there, especially if he's reciting prayers, and that is the custom to say psalms, uh, if it's not immediately in the room, or out, could be outside of the room, but nearby, that helps that uh, chasing away these spirits. I once did this. It was quite an honor. I was outside of the room, but I was for a woman who passed, and I sat there for a few hours. We had a shift uh, saying psalms. The person who guards the deceased is exempt from all positive mitzvahs of the Torah. So no prayers, no, you don't have to do anything. Saying the Shema that we mentioned last time, a person is exempt. They're doing such a sacred mitzvah by watching the body, guarding the body, that trumps all other obligations. Now, of course, somebody should not eat uh, treif and, and do do things that are inappropriate, but they don't have to do the active mitzvahs. It is forbidden to eat or make a bracha, a blessing in the room where the deceased lies unless there is a partition. So that would be like mocking the dead because once the person dies, they do not have the opportunities to fulfill mitzvahs and say blessings. So if we would be eating, enjoying ourselves and saying a blessing or studying, that would be mocking them. That's why actually every time we go to a cemetery, we cover our tzitzis, we don't pray and, you know, we don't put tefillin and we don't do certain things in the cemetery itself because that would be mocking the dead. Source 16. An onain. What is an onain? An onain is the name for the immediate family members from the time of death until the time of burial. This um, intermission, I guess, this, this uh, time, this period of time. They're called an onain. They are to be distressed and totally occupied with the deceased. It's a very time full of grief and pain. And an onain must avoid all kinds of levity, lest his conduct lead people to say that the deceased was a worthless person, and therefore he is not bothered about his burial, and he is not concerned about his death. This is a tremendous disgrace to the deceased. He must not eat meat or drink wine. It is a time to actually honor the deceased by showing grief. Showing that you are, the person is, the, the relative is bewildered and overwhelmed and shocked and in great pain. Otherwise, people might say, oh, they, they had, you know, that parent must have been a worthless person and not uh, worthy of any sadness at their passing. So it's actually respectful to be distressed, distressed. 17, an onain is exempt from all mitzvahs of the Torah. They don't put on tefillin, no shema, no prayers, nothing, no blessings. They can't, they can't even say amen, even if he desires to be stringent, even merely to respond amen, in which case he is not neglecting any of the, deeds of the, any of the needs of the deceased. A rabbinic ordinance forbids him to do so as an expression of respect for the departed. In this way, his heart will not be distracted so that he can think about the needs of the departed and focus on them at all times. He should be totally focused on the deceased, making sure the burial is arranged and all of the preparations and, and, more, and people are being let known, uh, notified about it so they can come and, and, and pay respects to, to the deceased. And that should be their sole focus and all their attention to be given to that. No mitzvahs, no uh, other things. That is what should be, he, sh- he or she should be preoccupied. <clears throat> that is 
the actual uh, the first steps after the passing. Now, obviously, arrangements need to be made. So, uh, rabbi should be called a the funeral home, Jewish funeral home, which or, or who will probably contact the burial society, the Chevra Kadisha, who will prepare the body, as we'll see in a moment, the tahara, the purification and the preparation of the body for burial, and they will first make sure that the doctor signs off with a death certificate in order for the burial to be able to be done as soon as possible. <clears throat> we move on to our uh, final section for today's lesson, but uh, one time there was a rabbi who came to the synagogue, and in the courtyard he sees there's a dead mule. So he calls the police, and the police uh, say there's no foul play here, nothing, nothing suspicious, so uh, call the... Health department. The health department says, listen, there's nothing uh, suspicious here. You've got to call the sanitation to pick it up. So he uh, calls the sanitation. And they say, well, uh, you need a permit from the mayor's office uh, for us to pick up the dead mule. So the rabbi doesn't really want to call the mayor. The mayor is uh, short-tempered. He doesn't know what to do, but he makes the call to the mayor. And then, sure enough, the mayor starts screaming at him and he says, uh, why are you calling me? You're the rabbi. You're the one that takes care of burying the dead. So why are you calling me? So the rabbi says, that's right, I do bury the dead, but first I wanted to notify the relatives. So um, that is unfortunately a part of a rabbi's job, or it's a great honor to be able to bring comfort to the soul by sharing and trying to make sure that the death process or the passing is done in a traditional Jewish way, as comforting as possible to the soul. We move on to our final section, source number 18. All who handle the dead must be aware that the body is a holy entity. The body is not only the container that serves the soul, but now the soul has departed and the holiness is no longer there, but it has become sanctified with an independent holiness. Through the soul expressing itself with the body, with the hands and feet and the mind and heart and all of the limbs of the body were used for good stuff. To study Torah, for mind to study Torah, for the mind to think of ways to help people, and the mouth to shower love and compassion, and the arms to hug and bring love and work hard and use the money for charity, all of the good things that our body was used for. So that body, even after the soul departs, is holy. And therefore it is treated with much dignity and much delicacy. Delicacy. It's being very delicate with the body in a very holy manner. And therefore, the name of the group of people that tend to the body, preparing the body for burial, are called the Chevra Kadisha, the holy society, the holy group. And there's actually a group of men to tend to men. And there is a group of women taking care of the woman because that is more respectful. Unlike non-Jewish um, groups, I guess, or people that take care. And it's, I don't think it's, um, at least I could say in the Jewish groups that take care of the dead, it is a, it is a, a very honorable position, a very honorable job. It's usually volunteer, but it's, it's uh, somebody of uh, prominence that is allowed into this group because it's a, it's a sacred act. It's a great honor to be part of this group. <clears throat> this group actually observes their own fast day once a year, on the shortest day of the year. They fast in order to kind of ask forgiveness from any of the people they had prepared and laid to rest. If they had not treated them with the utmost respect as they deserved, they ask for forgiveness and they actually have their own kind of private um, fast day. <clears throat> it could be quite overwhelming and sad for some of the members of this group, uh, especially if they're in a large community and they're quite busy. I heard once that the Rebbe told one of the members that he should make a point of going to every you know, wedding 
in the neighborhood as well. So has to kind of balance out the events he is attending. So it's not a lifeless body, it is a holy body that is treated with dignity. Source number 19, the verse tells us, Just as it came, so shall it go. Just as a newborn child is immediately washed and enters this world clean and pure, so he who departs this world must be cleansed and made pure. It is an ancient tradition, the body is cleansed, cleaned, that it is returned to God pure, just as it came into this world, we, we clean the body, so too it is returned um, clean. And if we think of the body as a unloan to us, the body, we do not own our bodies, and that's why we don't have permission to do whatever we want to our bodies. We are there to guard our bodies. We have to be, live a healthy life, to kind of live keep the body uh, going because it is on loan to us from God. And when the time comes for the body to be laid to rest, we give it back to God by putting it into the ground and letting it go back naturally to the elements. So you want to give it back to God. You know, if somebody lends you something, you want to give it back in good shape or in the best shape possible. So therefore the body is cleansed and clean. And also if the body would be smelly and dirty kind of, especially at the end of life, not always a person has full control over the body. There can be some things that need to be cleaned up. That would not be respectful for the person because the people involved in the burial would be uncomfortable and not be able to give the best respect. Uh, so therefore, it is part of the respect of the person that they should be cleaned. So that is the first step of the tahara. When somebody dies, uh, it is important. Not every, Unfortunately, not every Jewish funeral home um, does this because you have to check it off and not everybody knows what to check off. You have to ask, and it could be there's an additional fee, for the tahara, for the purification, the Jewish uh, process of purifying the body, as we will see. So the first step is to actually clean the body. Source 20, the entire body and head are washed with warm water and thoroughly cleansed. Care should be taken not to place the deceased with his face downwards, as that is disrespectful, to turn the body the other way, Face down is disrespectful. Rather, you should be inclined on his sides. When we have to, when the part of the body has to be washed, <clears throat> it is placed on his side. The body is then, after cleansing the body, is then immersed in a mikvah, a ritual pool. Or, if a mikvah is not available, and sometimes it's a little difficult, and they have these different mechanisms for it to be made possible, but or we pour nine kavim of water over him. So the amount of water kind of in a mikvah, you would pour it, and there's a whole system how it's poured over the head, and the body is standing kind of on a board, the whole system, but that is the second part. So the first part is actually cleansing the body, and then there is the spiritual cleansing, like immersing the body in a mikvah, or pouring a certain amount of water consecutively over the body continuously, and that it, you know that would be considered a mikvah as well. That can be done, although it, it could be difficult. But the Hevra Kadisha, these burial societies and the funeral homes, they have kind of a system of uh, you know how to how to do it, and that is... <clears throat> the <clears throat> that is the next step, and uh, you know, just like they are purifying the body, they should have in mind that uh, angels are purifying the soul. They ask forgiveness of the soul, and it's a very it's not it's not a casual event. These are great people, honorable people that are attending and giving respect to the person. The person is covered. Um, I don't know if I put that in here, but the the body is covered. Um, only, you know, the private parts of the body are covered. Unless they're actually being washed, the body is covered and only the parts of the body that are being washed are uncovered. Again, out of respect for the person. It's not just a lifeless body. And prayers are said, the name of the individual is said, and, and their father's name and their mother's name, I believe. A special prayers. It's, it's like a, a very... I, I've never done it. Um, but it's a very moving kind of experience. It's like a holy kind of experience. Source number 21. At first, the burial was more difficult for the relatives than the actual death. This is a quote from the Talmud that years ago, in the olden days, more than 2,000 years ago, uh, it came a point that burial was more difficult 
for the relatives an actual death. I mean, death was sad, but the burial was so difficult because it was customary to bury the dead in expensive shrouds. And the poor cannot afford it. So it was it was like such a, a tsaro, such a tsaurus, you know, such a, a, a worry. How are they going to afford these very lavish clothing? Relatives would sometimes abandon the corpse and run away. Things got out of hand. Relatives were, were, didn't have the means and they would run away and, and the body would just be there. Until Rabban Gamliel, the great sage Rabban Gamliel, he was the Nasi, the Nasi was the, the leader of the Jewish people in the first century, I believe. And he waived his dignity by leaving instructions that he be taken out for burial in linen garments. Cheap linen garments. And the people adopted this practice after him. And since then, everybody, even important people, even leaders and only everybody, equally men and women are all buried this became Jewish tradition in simple linen garments. Technically, cotton can be used as well, but any any cheap um, material. Actually, linen is specifically used usually because linen disintegrates rather uh, quick, and therefore it speeds up the process of the the body uh, decomposing. So, no need for suits. And uh, fancy clothing, simple clothing, if it was good for Rabban Gamliel, the great sage, and all the great Jewish leaders, uh, it is uh, good for all of us. Source number 22. The corpse is not buried in expensive shrouds, as ruining anything wantonly is forbidden. Another idea is the clothes are going into the ground. So the person doesn't need the clothing. So it would be a waste of money and clothes to be buried in expensive shrouds. It is a custom of respect to make garments of white linen for shrouds. White is pure and clean, preparing them for their appearance in the heavenly court. And they should be made nicely to indicate our belief in the resurrection of the dead. So they are simple, but they should be nice. Because we do believe that the bodies will be resurrected when Mashiach comes and the soul will be reunited with the body and the body will be reconstructed. And I guess having the clothes being nice is a symbol of our belief and faith that they will stand up in their clothes until they find a change of clothes. So it, sh it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be uh, ugly clothes, but nice linen. However, they should not be too elaborate. Interesting that there's an Yiddish expression that in Tachrichim is Nitokin Keshenes. In the shrouds there are no pockets. Quite literally that we don't make pockets in the in either knots or anything in the in the um, shrouds. So no pockets. Uh, we don't take anything along with us. We don't take any cash and uh, stuff like that. All we take is uh, the good deeds that we did. That's what we take along with us to the next world. I believe that the reason why we don't like tie, make any knots or uh, things like that, like a belt, because also a symbol of our belief that they will have to untie it when they wake up, and that would be difficult when the, when they're resurrected. So um, that's the tradition. Usually, the burial society, the funeral homes, they will have a stock of these shrouds. They're shrouds, not in a bad way. They're just simple white clothing that covers the entire body, and. Some people had their own shrouds or white clothing prepared. They would sew it themselves. And that can be done. Source 23, our final source for today. A man should be buried in a talus. If he had a beautiful talus in which he prayed during his lifetime, it is not proper to exchange it with a talus that is not as beautiful. Even if it's beautiful, you want to save it and you feel like a waste. No. It is for a person is desirous of being buried in the talis in which he prayed during his lifetime, which is kind of uh, a witness and bearing testimony that he had prayed during his lifetime as he's buried with his own talis. When dressing the deceased, one should think, just as his body is being clothed, so may his soul be attired in spiritual garments in Ganeden, in the world to come.
And after that, he was placed in a wooden coffin and a funeral and buried in a Jewish cemetery or in a Jewish section of a cemetery. So that is an overview of, uh, there are some other customs, but this is an overview of the general customs before death, at death, right after death, and the beginning of the preparation for burial called the Tahara, which is important to uh, make sure it gets done. And we're born as a Jew, we die as a Jew, and each Jew deserves to be laid to rest with the traditions of our rich heritage. There was a man that went to uh, visit the cemetery, put it into the GPS, and when he arrived, the GPS announces, you have arrived at your destination. So, we all pray and hope that we'll live to 120 healthy years with lots of nachas and good health. But studying this today helps us that when such an opportunity does present itself, we should be more aware of the Jewish traditions and hopefully be inspired to live a more meaningful life, utilizing every day as a gift from Hashem, living every day as if it were our last, doing everything we would have wanted to do on our last day, doing it now, not pushing things off, and becoming a better person, and living a meaningful life. Thank you for joining us for Lunch and Learn number 213. If you have a topic that you would like us to address in a future lesson, please let me know. Feedback is appreciated as well. You can share this lesson so others can benefit from the Torah teachings. Have a wonderful day. Be well. And l'chaim to life.